From Miami Law, I'm Aned Uges, and this is The Explainer. What's needed is a whole-scale transformation of a system where hungry people exist, even though there is sufficient food to feed everyone. This holistic right-to-food approach would place people's autonomy, participation, um, as at, at the center of decision-making processes. It would place you know, the most affected by hunger, Black, Indigenous, Latinx communities, women at the center. Welcome to Season 9 of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. The recent White House Hunger Summit looked at policies to reduce hunger and encourage healthy eating. Denise Cordova Montes, acting associate director of Miami Law's Human Rights Clinic, studies and advocates on the right to food. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. Thanks for coming and welcome to The Explainer. Glad to be here. Good, good. Let's start with the recent hunger conference at the White House. So what was accomplished and where did it fall short? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, for the first time in 53 years, the White House hosted a conference on hunger and released a strategy that aims to end hunger by 2030, which is something to clearly celebrate. Um, And the White House strategy is a comprehensive plan. There are many aspects that deserve praise, including free school meals, um, child tax credits, but the ultimate goal of ending hunger by 2030 will not become a reality unless we recognize poverty as the root cause of hunger. And unless we call for policy that holds corporations accountable for the role in creating many of the problems around hunger in the first place. Um, You know, landmark policies um, came out of the 1969 White House Conference, which was held again 53 years ago, um, such as, you know, the federal nutrition programs um, that currently exist. But the same will not be true of the current White House Conference um, unless we ensure that people and especially people who are affected by hunger um, have the loudest voice at the table. And unfortunately, this time around, the loudest voices seem to have come from corporations. Okay. So can you talk a little about the the five pillars strategy and how how does that differ from other developed countries' strategies? Sure. Um, I mean, the five pillars of the U.S. Um, strategy are, are laudable. Um, however, it's not clear that they will tackle uh, the root causes of hunger. Um, if people with lived experiences of hunger had been at the center of the discussions, uh, we'd be celebrating a plan that that boldly tackles racism, poverty, corporate accountability um, as, as a real way to end hunger. And while there is no perfect example um, out there, other nations are moving towards the adoption of a, of a framework that revolves around a holistic human right to food to address hunger. Um, And such an approach fundamentally understands that what's needed is a whole scale transformation of a system where hungry people exist, even though there is sufficient food to feed everyone. Um, This holistic right to food approach would place people's autonomy, participation um, as at, at the center of decision making processes, it would place, you know, the most affected by hunger, black, indigenous, Latinx communities, women at the center. Um, and again, it would it would mean that it would address racism, low wages, gender based discrimination and violence um, as the as the structural causes of hunger. 
um, yeah, for example, again, I would also look at, um, at incorporating a food systems approach when analyzing policies and actions related to food and nutrition. For example, when considering healthy diets, which is, you know, an important part of the, of the five strategy pillar, um, it is not enough to, to focus on making healthy food accessible to people. Um, rather, one would need to consider how is the food produced? You know, does it preserve soil health? Um, does it provide for decent working conditions and, and adequate pay? Um, does it foster local food cultures and, and knowledge exchange? Um, a food system perspective highlights that, that interconnectedness of things and rights. Um, and it recognizes that addressing one dimension of the right to food, such as nutrition, would, without addressing the others, such as workers' rights, women's rights, um, farmers' rights, um, is is not sufficient. You've been heavily involved at a national and an international level with the right to food. Could you talk a little about what happened in Maine and how that model could be or is being used elsewhere? Sure. Um, so in November 2021, Maine became the first state in the U.S. to enshrine the human right to food in its constitution. And while the right to food is recognized um, under international law, and by governments around the world, um, the U.S. has no such right in its federal constitution and has not ratified the International Human Rights Treaty where the where the right is enshrined. And so Maine really made history with this um, adoption of, of a constitutional amendment on the right to food. Um, and up until this time, up until this moment, um, you know, concerns over food regulations and food insecurity in the U.S. had focused almost exclusively on addressing two areas, um, f the, the food regulatory system and the, and the programs to feed the hungry. Um, and so this adoption of the right to food in a constitution really enables sort of this holistic understanding and, and way to tackle hunger. Um, and, and this realization that there were issues with that current system led to the birth of the right to food and food sovereignty movements in Maine, which again culminated, you know, this past year with Maine voters uh, themselves voting to amend the constitution to include the right to food. Um, how the right will play out in Maine or um, really depends on what people do with the right once, you know, it, now that it's ratified. Um, international human rights law provides a framework for trying to understand how it should be implemented. Um, but at the end, it's really going to be up to Maine legislators to enact legislation, uh, regulations, you know, that would um, that would really shape how it, it'll be implemented in the state. Um, we're currently, uh, myself and others in the clinic, are working closely with Maine Senator Craig Hickman and farmer Heather Retberg, who are two of the drafters of the constitutional amendment in Maine, to help sort of clarify what it means now that it's been implemented, now that, it mean, now that it's been um, included in the constitution, what does it mean to implement the right to food? Um, states in um, such as West Virginia and Washington um, are also building on efforts in Maine to enshrine the right to food in law. Recently, um, Delegate Daniel Walker of West Virginia introduced a right to food constitutional amendment, which was largely based on the language of the Maine um, amendment. And uh, while the amendment is currently sitting in committee, um, there have been developments since. In December of 2021, the city of Morgantown, West Virginia, adopted a municipal resolution um, on the right to food. 
And while the resolution is largely symbolic, it, it is one more building block towards the adoption of a right to food constitutional amendment in the state. And Washington state is also currently exploring the possibilities of introducing a constitutional amendment in the upcoming years. Um, I've had the privilege of being part of those discussions uh, with groups there who are really trying to figure out is the language of the main constitutional amendment right for them or how should it be um, changed so that it addresses the priorities in that state? Okay. So what are the most urgent needs? I mean, we are what the richest nation in the world and we have like an incredible uh, percentage of our population going hungry. So what are the most urgent needs that need to be addressed here and and in other parts of the world? I mean, I, I, I think there's terrible places where where there's like no food like Haiti. And like, so how are our problems different and how are they addressed? Yeah. Um, I mean, in the U.S., as a as a U.N. human rights body focused on racial discrimination recently um, recommended and, and here I'm, I'm quoting it recommended to the U.S. that it should take all necessary measures to guarantee the right to adequate food to strengthen its efforts to combat hunger and food insecurity, which disproportionately affect racial and ethnic minorities, especially women and children including by strengthening the institutional framework and adopting a comprehensive and rights-based national plan to end hunger in consultation with members of communities most affected by hunger. So this is what the UN committee told the U.S. very recently mm -hmm. uh, this summer. And the UN committee also told the U.S. that it should do this through the White House Conference on Hunger. So, um, you know, have the conference centered those voices of people who are most affected by hunger, the working poor, landless farmers, food workers, indigenous peoples, etc. Um, you know, we'd be celebrating this national strategy that would call first and foremost for for wages to be raised. Nearly half of those who benefit from SNAP are low wage workers. Remind me again what SNAP is? It's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Programs, formerly uh, food stamps. OK, good. Yes. Um, so, yes. So, you know, nearly half of those who benefit from SNAP are low wage workers. So clearly um, increasing wages for workers would should be first should be at the center of any policy to address hunger. Second, um, people and not corporations should be shaping policy. Um, you know, decades of, of farm policy in the hands of, of corporate lobbyists have favored industrial scale farming operations and, and led to, to big food monopolies. Um, and finally, um, uh, such an approach um, as, as the one that the UN committee has recommended the U.S. take would call for the human right to adequate food to really be embraced as the explicit framework behind the White House conference. Okay, I'm going to throw you uh, uh, out of left field. So... Remind me, uh, some city in California started giving poor people money. A thousand dollars. It was like a, a minimum income. And they did it for a year and it completely changed all of those lives. Is that what we're talking about? Like systems like that, that give people the means to buy food, to feed their families. That is uh, for sure one way to address hunger, you know, give um, there are many studies out there that show that if that people know what their needs are, how to best spend the money that that they receive in ways that would enable them to to live a dignified life. Um, and so, indeed, programs such as those that would um, uh, give people money to make decisions for themselves as to how to spend it would be indeed a way to 
to um, to realize the right to food. Got it. Um, so anything in closing and don't you have a big conference coming up on this? Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for that question. Um, yeah. So we will be hosting together with partners, um, including Why Hunger, um, the West Virginia University Center for Resilient Communities and, and this national um, this growing national right to food community of practice that's made up of, of legislators and, and food activists um, from across the U.S. Uh, we will together be organizing this um, conference on food housing and racial justice. It'll be held on November 10th here in Miami. Um, and we're hoping to examine um, lessons and challenges that different groups have faced around the, um, you know, across the U.S. Um, to to um realize the right to food how what are strategies that have worked what isn't working how can we jointly define um what implementation of a right to food approach should look like in the u.s um and it will also reflect on on um recommendations again that the u.s that the u.s has received Mm -hmm. from human rights bodies around ways to to realize um to address hunger how can we actually do that in a way that's um that's uh, human rights based um, and we will also um, explore the linkages between the right to food and other related rights, such as the right to housing um, and, and, and other movements that have, um, that have had uh, success in the U.S. in sort of espousing that rights-based framework, you know, thinking about housing as a human right, thinking about health as a human right. So trying to understand and learn from those movements as well um, and what the relationship is between uh, the right to food and these other rights. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for joining us and keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Catherine. All right. Take care now. Thanks for joining us for this season of The Explainer. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uges. Today's episode is sponsored by the Food, Housing and Racial Justice Symposium, open to the public on November 10th. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.